It's uh, lovely to be able to sit and dwell in God's Word and allow it to just sweep over us and to permeate our minds, our imaginations. As we have been going through our series, um, we're looking to explore God's purposes, what God is on about, God's mission plan that is revealed in Scripture from beginning to end, from from Genesis 1 to Revelation 20. God has a purpose, God has a mission. And I've summarised it in the phrase uh, shalom in the sanctuary of God. Um, And uh, there is so much behind that phrase that we want to explore as to how we locate the work of the gospel, salvation, redemption within that wider framework. And uh, the language of sanctuary is... um, very significant to God's purposes in uh, creating a sanctuary within the messiness of the world. So the backdrop of this work of God is against the uh, the darkness, the chaos, uh, that which is desolate and unformed and bringing in a place that is characterised by shalom. So we're going to continue looking at that. There are two creation narratives Um, One is in Genesis chapter 1, that's shaped around the days of of creation where God uh, speaks and things happen and then God reviews that and says it is good. There's a second creation narrative that's shaped around the Garden of Eden. It's found in Genesis chapter 2. And it's really helpful to read those two narratives side by side. Just a brief recap of where we left things last week. I'm not going to go through it all, but just a reminder of the, the central um, the themes that we want to explore further and reflect on. And first is this uh, Hebrew word shalom um, that is uh, very popular still within Judaism and as a, a social greeting as well as an uh, expression of faith. The word itself doesn't have any single English word that does anything like justice to it. It's like a a basket that you gather together. It conveys the notion of fullness and flourishing of God's creation. It talks about wellness, of wholeness, of prosperity, of peace, and especially of being restored or replenished. The word can actually mean to repay someone to make good until that's all been satisfied. So that notion of being filled up and of being replenished is uh, very central to it. A world where all is right and in harmonious rest. So I used this quote last week from uh, uh, Cornelius Plantinga in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. He's talking about um, the reality of uh, sin. So this is how uh, Plantinger expresses it. I just love this quote. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and saviour opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. (coughs) John, could you bring me your water? (laughs) 
happened last week too. Sipping time. So we're exploring this notion of shalom fervor today. And we finished last week by looking at how God culminated in the first creation narrative in Genesis 1 on the sixth day with the creation of the human race, male and female, and gave them a task, a commission. So if you like, the first great commission is a creational commission. God blessed them. Whenever we see the language of being blessed, it means that all that God has intended for creation begins to be experienced. The flourishing, the, the growth, the fruitfulness. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And then it comes to the, the final day, which is the day to experience that blessing, the day of rest. So within that wider framework, there is something very distinctive about the creation of humanity. Created in the male and female together. And in the, uh, the second narrative that we're looking at today in Genesis chapter 2, it um, highlights that until the creation of the woman, creation is incomplete and it is not good. More about that next week as I look at God's intention for the relationship between man and woman as revealed. So uh, the two things we noted last week, that humanity has been created in the image of God and I talked about the, the notion of the image is like the crown with the governor or the governor general. The crown is an image of the authority of the sovereign that enables them, authorises them to be about the sovereign's work, to be doing the work of God. So humanity has been given a particular responsibility to be engaged in God's mission at a level in which others are not. And secondly, to be in the likeness of God, as speaks of the capacity. Humanity has a capacity that exceeds anything else in creation, any other living being. And uh, both in terms of uh, creativity, but also in the sense of being able to be morally responsible, to discern right and wrong, and to make choices in, a, in an informed way, in terms of right and wrong as well. So, the second creation narrative that uh, Richard just read for us from Genesis 2 is located in the Garden of Eden. And it, the imagery is of a, a wonderful garden. This uh, picture here is actually one that um, I took a couple of years ago in the Butchart Gardens in, uh, on Vancouver Island. Does anyone know or visited the Butchart Gardens? Those stunning gardens that started out as a quarry, uh, abandoned quarry, and uh, through the work of a family and uh, in, in particular the, uh, the wife in the family, um, the stunning gardens that have been created. But the language in Genesis 2 is trying to draw us into an imaginative world. It's not something to try and press too literally, but rather 
allow it to evoke and to excite our imagination in that space. The idea of a, um, a garden around a royal residence was familiar in the ancient world. Um, certainly in Babylon, and you might know about the gardens of Babylon, features very much as a place of uh, uh, not just one of the great wonders, but also a great place of um, sanctuary. We have it here in our own state. So around the governor's residence, right in the centre of uh, Adelaide, there's a garden. And it's well maintained. It's a beautiful garden and it's used for good purposes socially. People been to the governor's into the walls at all? Yeah, different sort of ways. And you know that that's designed to be part of a um, more than just a, a, um, a pragmatic space. And of course if you go to uh, uh, the UK, um, it's hard not to come across some of the royal residences. And again, they are surrounded by spectacular gardens. Um, go to Windsor um, and then there's the forest and uh, that's a very familiar image that we have around royal residences. Genesis 2 takes that imagery of a garden gathered around a royal uh, residence that is characterised by uh, security and a place where there is peace and there is flourishing which means it is a walled garden. A bit like the, uh, the garden around Government House. There's a wall around it and you, if you just find yourself leaping over it, you're going to get yourself into trouble. It's a protected garden. So the Garden of Eden is a walled garden where the outside chaos and disorder and threats and uh, troubles are protected and within the garden you're drawn into a sanctuary space a place of refuge. You can see how that imagery is working, can't you? The commission that was given to humanity is to take this garden and to work it and till it, I'll come to that in a minute, but to extend it. So you, the idea is the imagery is pushing the walls further and further out as the garden grows and the garden takes over the wider area and the intention of creation, the great creation project, is that this garden will end up encircling the wholeness of earth. And it's, a, it's the imagery. So, so to stay with the, the way in which it appeals to our imagination, imagine pushing out that garden, that sanctuary, that place of flourishing, further and further afield. Now, of course... Later in our narrative, when we get to Genesis 3, we'll see how, as a result of rebellion, humanity has been excluded from the garden and pushed outside the walls. And the experience is more fearful and more toilsome and, and problematic. But the goal is to not just to come back into the garden, but for that garden to grow into which it becomes the totality of all that is is in that wonderful flourishing space. So when we read Genesis 20, sorry, Revelation 22, the last book of the Bible, that is the image we've seen. The rivers have gone out, the waters have gone out, and now the totality of the new creation is characterised by this flourishing and imagery. Now just why this is so important in terms of our understanding of God's mission is that when, uh, first of all, Adam and Eve and humanity is excluded from the garden 
and even later when the experience of God's people in Egypt in uh, uh, slavery that is characterized by the hard work and the, uh, the, all the privations that come with being slaves and they eventually are extracted from Egypt and set on a path towards the promised land. That land is described as a garden sanctuary. It's described as the garden, an outpost of the garden that's re-established. And so it appears in the prophets and time and time again, this imagery is to describe what lies ahead for us as a place to enter into. When we come to the New Testament, and I'm just sketching why it's such an important theme to, to sit with at this stage, the church is described as a sanctuary, as a holy people. And in that sanctuary, this work of refuge and of flourishing is to take place like an outpost of God's mission. And it is to reach beyond, it is to extend, it is to gather and to welcome in into that space. So where I'm, working, where I'm heading, um, just to flag it, it's no great secret, is I'm really keen that we reshape St Matthew's vision of who we are and our identity and a sense of why we exist as a church is as to be a sanctuary church, to be a people and a place of sanctuary, of shalom, of flourishing, of refuge, of encouragement and of nurture and of rest. Because that is actually what we are called to be. This isn't just an idea that I've plucked out of nowhere and said, doesn't that sound great? This is in scripture. This is the great scriptural narrative. And within it, as one uh, expression of it that I'm also keen to uh, reintroduce, is at the heart of our church complex, at the heart of our worship space, I'm keen that we have a sanctuary, a space that is dedicated for one purpose, which is to be still in the presence of God. So I'm um, now exercising my um, responsibilities to actually say that this, this is not a storage area. This is a sanctuary with some chairs and a place to sit. And whenever the church is open, people are welcome to come to sit and to pray. And if, uh, my hope is to re-establish the, uh, the ministry we used to have uh, a while back, that after our services, that we just have one or two people in each congregation who if someone wants, us to, wants to sit with something they believe God has been saying to them in the service, that they can just come forward, find a space that's quiet. Things aren't busy around that space. And just to be still and to pray with people as well. But that's just an image of what our whole community should be like as we seek to flourish and to grow into that space. So where does this uh, begin to take us? The Lord God made all sorts of trees to grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed two trees. One is the tree of life, and the other is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I'll come back to the second tree in a few weeks' time when we recognise the disobedience and of what it was to eat of that tree. But today I want to focus on the tree of life. 
And you would have noticed that imagery has begun to feature on our welcome sheet and on some of our slides and other things. But there's a difference between the image that I've put there and the image that appears on our welcome sheet. You notice what the difference is? Colour, yeah. What else in the, what goes with the colour? Leaves. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, the one we've used so far is actually a winter tree. It's a just, um, deciduous tree <laughs> and it's just the bare tree. There's actually an intentionality behind it on my part because I want us to recognise that the seasons are something we have to grow into. We just don't drop into it. My hope is that as we continue our conversations and explore some of our ministries as a church, that by St Matthew's Day, this is the challenge for all, is to how can we give expression of the flourishing of the tree? Moving beyond winter, by St Matthew's Day we will be in spring. And we begin to, whether it is um, through projects that we have done, whether it is... Um, something that has been written or some music or some artwork, um, some creative art, uh, craft, whatever it may be, that we give expression to what does it look like as a community of faith to be tapping into the tree of life. Something else I'll put off for another conversation um, as an act of discipline on my part because I get so excited by it. But it's a discovery I made um, in the last year or so is that roots actually talk to each other. It's a scientific discovery in the last decade. Um, there's a kari tree in New Zealand that is dead. It had been dead for decades, yet sap was coming out of the kari tree. An ecologist said that's not supposed to work. A dead tree doesn't have sap. And they discovered that the root system in a forest was communicating and providing energy across the forest. So the imagery of the roots that begin to nourish and act in community is a theologically an incredibly rich image. There's a great book about it. Um, you can go and do a Google search about do roots actually talk to each other. And there's a Canadian scientist who's explored how it happens. You ask Aboriginal people, they would say, duh, in their own language. <laughs> they actually knew that. It's actually part of Aboriginal folklore that they said that they knew that forests actually talk to each other and nurture each other and actually have uh, paintings and artwork to convey that as well. So, what does this look like in our own context? Well, in South Australia we can visualise it when the rains come into the outback. The desert, which you'd otherwise say is lifeless and uh, without um, energy and all that goes with that, um, suddenly springs to life. So we can actually see the imagery in our own world as well. But in particular, we see this uh, key phrase, the Lord God took the man. Now at this stage, it's not a man specifically as male. Uh, the, the, uh, the Hebrew word is Hadam, which then becomes the name Adam in due course. But at this stage, this earth creature is less than fully formed, is incomplete in some way. And we'll discover next week that it's not good until the woman has been created as the partner. But this earth creature was placed in the Garden of Eden and there are two verbs used. 
to cultivate it and take care of it. Now, that word language of cultivation is literally what we see in our fields. And if you go in the outback and you see the harvest, and whether it's the vineyards or uh, the hops or whatever it may be, we can see it literally. But it's even bigger than that. It's cultivating community. Cultivating community is to be culture makers. We shouldn't fear culture. We should be concerned to have as healthy a culture as possible and to, to weed out that which is uh, entangles and some of the weeds that we should be doing. And where there are toxic things in our culture, we should name it and seek to eliminate that. But more positively, Christians should be the fore in highlighting all that is good and healthy in culture, in community, and what it means to be a healthy neighbourhood that looks out for others. And actually there is a, a global movement of rediscovering the neighbourhood and the village. Things like community libraries, things like community gardens. Gardening Australia has some great expression of that on, Saturday, on Friday night. Of uh, ways in which we have communal gardens and begin to focus that we're not designed to be in isolation. So that work of culture making in its broadest sense, is all-embracing. We're all part of this mission of God, wherever we are, and whatever gifts that we have been given that we bring and we may offer to enrich, to bring about a, um, adding something of value to our wider community. And that is measured not by how much income we earn or how much we, we stimulate things, but what we bring to it each in our own way into that space. So that's where we're going to continue to explore that. So I want to finish with a clip, which I'm pretty confident Al is going to play. You might need to wind the volume back a bit because the initial one was pretty strong. But this is from a, a group in the, uh, the US, a movement called the Higher Calling. Higher Calling, it's a webpage you can go. And they tell stories of how people seek to live out this calling that we all have to be culture makers. And it tells the story of a woman um, and her family, but she's actually a builder who loves renovation, taking that which has been discarded or that which has reached its apparent use-by date and giving new life into that space and the culture she brings to do it as well. So let's see how we go with this clip.
each day, I just pray that God will help me to do my very best. The closer in relationship I am with God, the better able I am to be my best at work. We often get the message that in order to do godly work, we need to be pastors or evangelists or Sunday school teachers. I don't feel gifted to be a pastor, but I do feel strongly gifted to build homes, and I want to use that work. satisfying 